ever visited a museum, you know what fun it can be to look at all the exhibits, whether it be a history museum, whether it be art museum, uh, natural history. It's fun to look at the exhibits and, and to picture uh, the story that they tell. I've been to several museums. I've been to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. a couple times. It's an amazing museum, especially the Museum of Natural History, uh, as well as the Air and Space Museum. But probably my favorite museum that I've been to, and I, that's something I enjoy, is the Louvre in Paris. Uh, when I lived there, uh, my junior year of college, uh, doing my junior year over there, uh, my, my friend and I, classmate, we took a day and went up to see the Louvre. And uh, the Louvre is massive. If you've seen pictures, um, it's, a, it's a very big museum. Uh, we spent six hours going through there, and I don't think we touched a third of what that museum has to offer. But it, it's truly an amazing experience. It's, it'll probably take you three days to go through it. And as we went through the Louvre and, and we looked at it, there were times where I couldn't stop help but stop and wonder and look at the exhibits I was looking at, whether it be a painting by Mark, uh, Mike, Michelangelo, uh, Da Vinci, some of one of those famous painters, or looking at an obelisk uh, that was uh, discovered. And on that obelisk is the, the name King David. And it is a description of one of the enemies of Israel, but it mentions King David's name. And, and just standing with awe and wonder at, at those uh, exhibits and just thinking about the story that they tell and, and the, what went into the author's mind as he was painting that portrait or sculpting that sculpture, it's just amazing to, to sit back and look at it. Well, this morning we come to the last part of this section, and I want us just to think about how the awe that we experience at a museum does not hold a candle to the awe that we have witnessed in these verses looking at our God who saves. And so I want to keep with that theme. I didn't want to bring a new proposition or idea to you. I think that the same one that we talked about a few weeks ago still stands. We must stand in awe of our God who saves. And that awe must be in depth greater than what we might experience at a museum or an art gallery. So I want to give you three more truths from this passage of Scripture of why we must stand in awe of our God who saves. The first truth comes from verse 5 to verse 6 in that He gives spiritual life and raised us up together. That just a little short phrase there has so much packed into it. It shows a couple of things about the spiritual life we have. And the first thing is that the believer is raised from spiritual death. That just is implied there. To be raised up shows that there's some sort of death that has occurred. In context here, the death that is not physical death, but spiritual death that comes from the penalty of sin. That's what he's talking about. Yes, he's referencing the, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, but by that resurrection from the physical death that Christ experienced, he has enabled us through God's power to be raised to spiritual life. 
being raised from spiritual death. From the time Adam and Eve sinned, mankind has experienced spiritual death, which is a separation from God with no hope of reconciliation. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. He says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Well, we talked about it in the first part of verse chapter 2, right? We talked about there's no possible way that we, were, we could be made alive. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, verse 1. And that's, that is the status which all mankind experiences even now. Even though there is life going on around us in the, in the various uh, scenarios of our world, ultimately that life doesn't cover up the spiritual death that people face. That sentence of death. And notice here, in this phrase, and raise us up together, that this is divine resurrection with no human initiative. Going back to verses 1-3 through of this chapter, there was no way that we could be made alive. There was no way that we could be raised from spiritual death. We, just didn't, we don't have that ability. Mankind does not have that resource available to him. He can't just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be spiritually alive. I'm going to relate to God now. He can't do that. There's no power in him. There's no ability in him to it. But God has that power. Are you thankful this morning? Just a little sub-point here. Are you thankful that God has the power to make people spiritually alive? That even though people face spiritual death every day, they do not have to face it without hope. Because God can make them alive. I hope that's how we see people. As spiritually dead, but who can be made spiritually alive through God's power. Second thing to notice underneath here of a giving spiritual life is that the believer is resurrected to spiritual life because Christ was raised from the dead. Okay, that's the idea of the raised up together. Paul, Paul is using that word to show our unification with Christ in his resurrection. So the resurrection is not a physical one, even though that is coming. We read in Scripture that there is physical resurrection that awaits us. But this is a spiritual resurrection to new life. We read this morning in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 in our, our New Testament re- reading, if you then were raised with Christ, okay, we were raised with Him together with Him, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the throne of God. That's the, that, 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 is, that is the quintessential description of spiritual resurrection is with Christ. Together. That's the idea. The word together means unification with Christ in his resurrection. So being unified, being together with Christ in his resurrection, physical though, spiritual for us, but with the hope still of a physical resurrection still coming, the believer has victory over physical and spiritual death because of what Christ did in his resurrection. So by his resurrection, God gives spiritual life 
but also the physical resurrection and spirit, uh, over physical death and spiritual death. So we do have a, kind of a double-edged sword here. That we both have physical death, but we have overcome that through Christ, but we also have spiritual death that we overcome through Christ. So there's a two-edged sword there. So you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, I hope that's where we're at this morning, we do not have to fear death in any form. Right? We, we, we can be, be so overwhelmed with the truth that we have this promise that we, at point of salvation, became united with Christ in His resurrection so that we do not have to fear death, either physical or spiritual. And, and, and to tell you the truth, in light of, the, of our current situation today, that's a great comfort. That even though death may come in, in whatever circumstance, we still have victory. And so the believer in Jesus Christ, as he's been, been, been granted or given spiritual life, he has given us this promise of, of physical and spiritual victory over death. But notice also, too, just, just uh, and I didn't put it on here, my apologies. Um, notice also here that this identity is unique. Okay? He's raised us up together. There, there, there's no one else who has this identity we don't need anything else. It's, it's, it's if Christ and, and us, we have, we have become one person, the Scripture talks about. And, and the best way that I can illustrate, I was thinking about this, how do I illustrate this, is the use of an ID card. Whether it be a driver's license with your photo on it or passport photo. And what does that ID card have? It normally has certain characteristics that belong uniquely to you. So height, weight, uh, eye color, Hair color or lack of hair color in my instance, okay? Which is fine. Some people think that it's an issue for me and I, I really don't have a problem with it. Um, so they have certain physical characteristics. You also, in a, in a driver's license, get an ID, a number, oh, same with a passport, you get an ID number on that passport and driver's license, which it shows that it's you. So no person can come up to a, a person of authority, whether it be a police officer or port authority, and carry your ID card, say, hey, this is me, let me through. You can't do that, because they'll look at their ID card, and again, there's fakes out there, we get that. But looking at ID card or passport, that person in authority can say, no, it's not. What are you doing having somebody else's ID card? And the person can probably make all the mistakes, the excuses that they want, but reality is they can't claim your ID. Well, just like you and I have an ID that labels us and gives us certain physical characteristics, so we have an identity or ID with Christ. So that in the spiritual realm of things, we are viewed as having Christ's identification. It's no longer us. We're no longer our own unique identity. Now we have another unique identity, and that identity was with Christ. And when you and I get to heaven, as, as we, we mentioned this morning, several people passing away, some unexpectedly and, and sadly, some because of disease. But those people, when they got to heaven, their ID was no longer Nels Jorgensen or Mr. Stadola, or 
Dr. Van Hoosier. No, their ID that they showed to God was Christ because they were identified with him. And therefore, as we know from Scripture, Christ or God views them as having not sinned and therefore they are welcomed into eternal life. So it leads me to ask this question this morning by way of application. Are you showing your Christ ID to the world? Are you in your personal life as you're going about your work, as you're engaging in relational conversation, as you're, you're living at home, are you whipping out your Christ ID and living that out? Or are you whipping out your ID that it's with an old lifestyle and living that out. Paul says, let me go back there to Romans chapter 6. Paul says an encouragement along this, way, on this, along this line that that doesn't have to be the case. We don't have to whip out our old ID. Romans chapter 6 let me read verse, starting verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live, no, live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was way, raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And he continues on in verse 6 to show that we don't have to be slaves to sin anymore. Why? Because God has freed us. Now we can be slaves to God and be used for Him. And so as you are raised together with Christ by, by virtue of your trusting Him by faith for salvation, you're unified with Him in His resurrection so that you have the promise of, of physical and spiritual victory. Are you showing that to the world? Are you living like a victorious believer? Or are you living like a defeated sinner? And this is a challenge to me. You know, with all that we have going on in our world today, it's discouraging to turn on the news, which I, you know, don't, I highly don't encourage anymore. It's just depressing. But to turn it on and just see all the stuff that's going on and just think, man, what am I supposed to do? guess there's no hope. I guess I'll just live the way I want to. No, no, that's an unbeliever's perspective. That's someone who doesn't have hope. You and I have the identification with Christ, and we can show that despite the difficulties we face, despite the uncertainties we encounter, we still belong to Christ, and that makes all the difference. Are you living like Christ in this world today? Why should you and I stand in awe of the God who saves? Because He's granted us spiritual life. Secondly, He grants eternal life and raises us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul notes a couple things and it's just a short phrase. He notes that the believer has a place in the heavens. Made us sit together. That, that, that phrase has they have to cause to sit down with. Now this goes all the way back to chapter 1, verse 20, where he says, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. That's the idea there. 
that God made Christ sit down, not in a forceful fashion, but gave him the seat and by giving him that position, made him sit down. And linking back with that verse in chapter 1, verse 20, it shows that this word shows that we are promised eternal life with Christ in the heavenly places. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, writes about this, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven. For you. Peter writes and is encouraging. He, he mentions the eternal life, the living hope. Inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, not fading away, reserved. That's where you and I have a place. And something that is not corruptible, something that is not stained. That he may sit again together. I'm jumping ahead of myself. Together in the heavenly places. The, the, the heavenly places refers to where God is. Okay, that's where God dwells. This is no mere home, but a permanent residence that far outshines any habitation available. There are many homes that are that are that are around us in our area. Many of them beautiful. People live there. And uh, if you go, obviously, as you know, you've lived here longer than I have. You know, the lake area is just beautiful homes. But a home with God far outshines that. Far outshines any physical construction man can make. We are there. The believer has a home with God. And that home is far more spectacular than anything that we can come up with. The eternal life that we have with God is a home with Him. It's not some abstract reality that you know, just God, we get up to heaven and God just says, okay, here's your place. Go have fun. No, God, God is the one who says, welcome home. Come into a relationship with me that is even more meaningful and more intimate than anything you've ever experienced. And this is all possible because of Christ. The believer has a place with God because he is united with Christ. The word together reflects that. And, and an illustration I might give of this is, is a name plaque. Um, you normally see them on, on people's houses. We don't have one at our house. I don't know if we ever will. We might. But what, 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 when you approach a house that has a name on it, like the Petersons or the Sorensons or the Bjorkwists, it's a good Norwegian name, Scandinavian name. Okay. Dalvang, that's another one. Um, when you have that plaque on the house, it identifies that's where the person lives. That, 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 that's the identification badge, if you will, that makes that person, whoever visits, say, you know, the Sorensons live here. Or David and Mary Fish, they live here. That's the identification that is put forth. But it, in, the, in the believer's life, it is not 
no, is no longer the, the, the identification of David, fish, Mary, fish, whatever it might be. It's the identification that Christ lives here. The Christ is there. That's, the, that's our identification. That's the badge that we wear. He made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And here also Paul emphasizes that, that in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, he, he's also uh, emphasizing here, I believe, that the ascension of Christ, which took him back to be with his Father. So in the same way, just as, as Christ was raised to the heavenly places, so you and I are assured of a place with the Father because of what Christ has experienced. He, he, he rose, he ministered for 40 days after his resurrection, he he. he uh, went to heaven, sat down, has a place there. And we read in Acts <clears throat> that Christ was seen to be seated at the hand of the Father. But that's where Christ is, and we're assured of a place there. Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes there in verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation talks about in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, he who overcomes, this is Christ speaking, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down to heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. This is the promise to the believer who overcomes. And, and, and the whole point of that passage of Scripture, the letters to the seven churches, is uh, to show to the one who overcomes that they, they are really saved by what they experience and what they receive. But it, all of it leads me to answer this as, as we talk about God granting eternal life. All of this leads me to ask this question. Are you thankful that you have a home with God? That despite the uncertainty, the, the fear, the anxiety, the distress, you cognitively thank God that you have a home with Him. And are you thankful that you and I, despite, again, despite all that we face, that we, we are assured of a place with God? We have a home. I think if you would talk to the average person today, what is the most important thing to you? A lot of them will include in their response, family or home. That's what, that's what people fundamentally desire for themselves. You look at our, at our adoptive um, scene today. At one time in our country, there can be over 500,000 kids in foster care. And the unfortunate thing is they don't have a home. And when you talk to them, what do you want the most? They want a home. And at times it might feel like you and I are homeless. You and I might feel like we're just floating around. We're not, we're not settled down. We don't have some sort of security because we're, just, we're so feeling out of, out of whack. But in the midst of that, God has given us eternal life and he has given us a home. So that we may feel like we're pilgrims on this earth. 
but we do have a home waiting for us. And that's not a lie. That's the truth. You and I have a home waiting for us. And you may this morning just be struggling with that concept. You may just... There's so much hurt and anxiety in your life. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, can you look to the promise that you have that you have a home with God? That's where your hope is. Your hope isn't in this world. Your hope is not in the political process of our country. Your hope is in God who has given you a home with Him. So trust in that. Embrace that. Hold on to that. If we're going to, to, to stand in awe of God, the God who saves, we must remember that He, he gives spiritual life. He grants eternal life. And then finally from verse 7, He loves to display His grace. That in the ages to come, in the, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is, this is the, whole, the whole part. Okay? This, is, this is the whole goal for, for God. God. God has purpose behind what he does. That phrase, that, shows that. That in the ages come. So here's the purpose. Here's why God has given dead people life. Here's why God has made rebellious sinners His children. Here's why God has been merciful. Here's why God has been loving. Here's why God has been gracious. <coughs> Excuse me. All that God has done in salvation from making dead people alive to giving them the blessings of his spiritual life is designed so that he might show off his grace. I kind of liken it to, pardon me, I kind of liken it to a, to a trophy case in a house. We've, we've talked about this before. But if you imagine a trophy case in a house is designed to show off items that are valuable to that person. Most of the time, it's, it's sports trophies or perhaps hunting trophies or perhaps awards, medals that people have. So I want you to picture that what God is doing in salvation is He's assembling a trophy case. He's building it. Or he has built it. And there's shelves. There's, there's, there's glass that you can look in and see the trophies are on there. And funny enough, there's only one type of trophy. And one type of trophy is us. Those who believe in Him. Those who have come to trust in Him. So much so that He puts us on display as trophies of His grace. And God loves to show us off. God loves to show His grace off. And that's the whole point. That is the purpose of our salvation. To show off grace. Some people might look at that and say, well, that's really proud. No, that's God. He can do whatever He wants. And He shows His grace. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace. This just kind of shows portrays that God wants to be gracious. God desires that in our life. God's not stingy. 
God's not selfishly holding on to His grace. No, He wants to be gracious. Paul experienced that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, where he's, just, he's not understanding what he's going through. He pleads God to remove the thorn in the flesh. What does God say to him? And he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. God showed off grace in Paul's life by leaving that thorn there. And that is what he does. He, he directs the attention to his grace. That's, that's, the whole, that's the verb construction there. He might show. It is designed to show attention to or point somebody to something. That's God's desire. That's His wish. He wants people to see that He is gracious. Psalm 116, verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. Grace is who God is. And he loves to show it off. And, no, and notice here, this is interesting. He might show. Not you. Not me. God. God wants to show off His grace. So, so this is an encouragement to me that, that as a recipient of His grace, I'm not supposed to, I'm not required to show off that grace. To show, hey, go look at God, how God has been gracious to me. No, it is God's responsibility to show off, hey, look at the person I've been gracious to. And that's an encouragement to me. Guess what? If that were my responsibility, I'd fail miserably. But yet God is at work showing off His grace so He can point people to Himself. And notice where this grace is to be shown. It is to be shown to all generations of believers. That's the idea of the phrase, in the ages to come. Not only when Paul was writing, but also in those who would be saved after. As long as there is time, God intends His grace to be on display. It also shows that God has a plan for His grace. What do you think of that God has a plan? God's just not winging this thing. God has a plan for His grace. It's not up to, not up to chance. It's always been God's design plan to demonstrate His grace publicly. It isn't a secret club that we're a part of that we just, once we get the secret password and everything, we go in and now we're, we're extended all these different favors. No, this is a public display of His grace. God wants to show us off to say, look at what my grace has done. You and I can think of different people in our lives who, who are reflections of God's grace. I think of D Dr. E. Robert Jordan and who... God took from being an ornery, foul, filthy, foul-mouthed sailor in the Navy, took him from that status and made him a servant, faithful to the end. And that was all of God's grace. There was nothing in E. Robert Jordan that attracted God to him. Nobody was attracted to E. Robert Jordan. But God in His grace saved him and allowed him to start Calvary Baptist Church in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, which influenced over 100 churches planted across the East Coast. And there are other people that you can think of in your life who are trophies of God's grace. 
You know why their lives have been so constructed in such a way? It's to show that God has been gracious to them. And your life, God has constructed your life in such a way to show His grace to others. And notice also from this passage as well that His grace flows from an inexhaustible source. The word is exceeding riches. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> the word exceeding means to attain a degree that externally exceeds a point on a scale of extent. A scale of extent it means to go beyond, surpass that. Basically, beyond what you could ever imagine cannot be numbered. Riches refers to wealth, that, is what, that which is wealthy or valuable. So Paul is using this phrase to show that the resources for, for God's grace do not run dry. They flow from a deep reserve that is limitless. One might, one might use the example of a credit card that has no spending limit. Would you like to have one of those? Don't. That's not a good idea. But also no spending limit. But guess what? You don't have to pay it back. It just is this continual resource for you. That's God's grace. You and I, as corny as this might sound, you and I each carry God's credit card of grace that we can use and that He gives to us to be used by us in various circumstances, and it never runs out. Are you thankful for God's grace? It doesn't run out. God doesn't, God doesn't give you a grace, a grace amount for the day. <laughs> I mean, we'd use that up in two seconds. But God gives you an inexhaustible store of His grace so that you and I, as we interact with people, as we live our lives, we can rely upon that grace to do what He wants us to do. Paul says again in Philippians chapter 3, or 4, excuse me, and my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That inexhaustible grace. Paul also highlights here that the practical application of this. His grace is worked out practically through kindness. That undeserved favor of God, which Paul cannot help but mention. I mean, it's just incredible that many times, even in the first chapter, and not even a chapter and a half, that Paul has mentioned the grace of God shows that if Paul is so concerned with God's grace, we ought to experience it as well. We ought to be consumed with God's grace because that is what has brought salvation. That has allowed God to work is His grace. And in being gracious, God has been kind. The word kindness has the idea of quality of being helpful or beneficial. It can, can also be translated goodness or generosity. God's kindness through various actions to us is how abundant grace is made known. God's kindness to you and me by, by number one, saving us is an evidence of His grace. God's kindness to me by providing me with a wife and a family is an evidence of God's grace. 
God's kindness to you in, in giving you certain things in your life, whether it be relationships, financial blessings, spiritual blessings, physical blessings, is all of His grace. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the rossing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God's kindness to you and I is evidence of his grace. You being able to make it here this morning for services is evidence of His grace. Do you see how God has been gracious to you? I mean, I, I could go on and on and on. But think in your minds how God has been kind to you. That literally is grace. And notice to who this grace is shown. Not, not, not your average person, although there is common grace that Scripture points out but His grace is to those who believe. Towards us. Not Joe Blow down the street who doesn't know Christ, who barely goes to church on a Sunday, who just does whatever he wants. No, God's grace has been shown to us, those who believe. We are the intended target of God's grace. It is the intentional grace of God. Think about this with me. You put your, your name in the slot. But say this, God has been specifically gracious to David Fish. God has been specifically gracious to you put your name in the slot. God is intentional being gracious to you and being kind to you. Again, this isn't random. This isn't God just saying, okay, I'm going to be gracious to Les today, but not to Chris. You know, she, she's, man, she hasn't really deserved it. I'm going to give it to somebody else. No, 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 no. God gives grace, equal grace to every believer and is inexhaustible and is intentional. God is so gracious to you and I. It's an intentional, and, and, and by way of, by way of just a, a further point, it, it shows that he loves, right? It shows that he loves you and me to be gracious to us, to be intentional in our lives, to, to pour on the riches of his grace. It shows that God loves us. God doesn't, God doesn't pour on grace to those he doesn't love. But to those he does love, and and and, and, and as been made, those who have been made part of his family, he just dumps it on us. And notice where this grace can be found. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. His grace is found in Christ alone. Again, this, this phrase in Christ Jesus has been well used throughout this first chapter and a half. And the whole point is to show that this is where the grace is found. Christ alone provides those experiences that you and I can have 
to experience God's grace. We cannot find it anywhere else. To look for grace outside of Christ is to come up empty. There are many people today who are looking for for God in many different places. They want the grace of God. They want the love of God. But they're looking all in the wrong spots. They're looking at their family. They're looking at their church. They're looking at even their job. Another relational uh, relationship that they have. But Paul says the grace of God, the inexhaustible resources of His grace directly to us are found in Christ alone. And this flies in the, in the face of the day of people who say again that, oh, well, you can, you can find God's love and God's grace in many different forms and many different paths. No, 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 no. It's, it's in Christ alone. I hope and I pray that as we encounter people that we can point them to that truth that in Christ alone is found grace. Paul highlights this idea of finding grace in Christ alone in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8-10. through 10. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's in Christ alone that we experience His grace. And it leads me to ask this question as we think about this, as we think about even the song that we sang, Grace Alone. Are you pleading with God for grace in your life? As you experience the work, as you, as you go to work, as you... Uh, get up in the morning as you walk around your commun- the community, as you interact at the grocery store? Are you coming to God prior to interacting with those people and those situations? Are you coming to God pleading with Him for grace? Yes, you and I haven't. It's an inexhaustible resource, but we can easily fall into the trap of forgetting that, can't we? Like we just, we just gotta take it, take the bull by the horns and seize the day and do all this stuff and and we us 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 we gotta do it do do let's go action. When in reality we cannot accomplish anything without God's grace. So are you and I daily pleading for God's grace? Just just maybe not getting physically on our knees. But time and time again, throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month, pleading with God to be gracious to us. God, give me grace in this relationship. I feel like I want to punch the person right now. But Father, help me to be gracious to him. Father, in my work, you know, I just, I don't like my boss. I don't like what I'm doing. I just feel out of place. Father, give me grace to calm down so that I can work my job, do my job, provide for my family, in a way that pleases you. God, give me grace there. 
God, God gave me grace in, in my health. I, I'm just I'm, I'm struggling physically and health-wise. Just man, God, I, I need grace. I feel like I'm going to pop. And trusting Him for that grace, pleading with Him for that grace. There are many things that awe us in life, but none is or should be greater than the God who saves. And why should, we, why should he leave us standing in awe and wonder? Because he gives spiritual life. He makes, spiritual, he makes people alive who are dead. He grants eternal life. We have a home with God. And he desires to be gracious. He wants to show off his grace to us. May you and I never lose our awe of this saving God.